Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Without further ado, the, the, our current speaker requires very little introduction. Um, she is our academic dean here at the Harvard Kennedy School. She has been for many years the director of the Women in Public Policy Program, and while uh, Dean Almendorf has stolen her back to be academic dean, I'm having the pleasure of um, co-directing the Women in Public Policy Program with her. Um, Iris, you know her book, I'm sure What Works, has just made a very uh, important impact um, by bringing behavioral insights into the difficult challenges of um, promoting uh, gender diversity in organizations. And um, I'm just not going to go any further because obviously I think they get the they get the idea and they're eager to hear about it. So please join me in warmly welcoming um, Professor Iris Bonin. for this uh, very, very warm um, introduction. And um, good afternoon, everyone. I have to tell you, it's um, a bit of an emotional moment right now for me to see so many of you here. This hasn't always been the case at the Kennedy School, and I know we still have um, a long way to go to increase diversity, inclusion, um, move us closer to gender equality. So lots of work ahead of us, no question. Um, uh, and it will make me... Um, sound very old than I am, <laughs> to say we have come um, a long way. So thank you for being here. Uh, this is super exciting. Um, and particularly just the day before International Women's Day, in this March of the month, and uh, in this month of March, so it's, it's particularly um, special uh, to do this now. Uh, so I'm actually going to ask um, a question, but not to test you in any way, but just to gouge a bit your background in terms of how many of you have read What Works. I kind of know where to start uh, with my comments. Okay, that was very useful because I, I now I know it's exactly about half. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna try to find, the, to find that little graph. Okay, very good. So um, I wanna start with this image here. Um, and uh, by the way, I, is this for me to see it here? I don't need a seat. So does Hannah have a seat or did she have a seat? Oh. Yeah, I don't need a seat. <laughs> okay. okay, so I'm going to start with this image here, and again, a quick question, what do you think of when you see this? Australia. Australia. Thank you for volunteering. Um, so I was actually in Australia recently, and as I imagine, when we show this in Australia, nobody says Australia. <laughs> right? Everyone says, oh, you know, kangaroo cross. Um, which, of course, sadly, is um, a true issue in Australia. I'm starting with this to suggest to us that these images, these icons, have a meaning. And they have a meaning not just based on what you see on the screen, but also in the eyes of, of, kind of the observer. And I want to show you a number of other um, kind of symbols or icons. Here's another one. It's going to go downhill from here, by the way. <laughs> because that is um, a webpage that um, I think Anisha found. Or some of us found as we were looking for an icon for experts. And then came across this webpage, here's a random webpage, uh, 2024 icons of experts. Um, and exactly six of the 2024 were women or female looking icons. So we do express things, right, with the, with the representations that we choose. And I'm going to give you one more example, um, and that is this. Just let me stare at this for a moment. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. 
So in fact, uh, Jenny and Suzanne and I um, uh, have just concluded a big media analysis in Australia again, um, looking at sports reporting. And as you might imagine, gender gaps in sports reporting are well and alive. Um, we can't quite prove bias, but we can go as far to say let's compare how often uh, women um, sports stars are talked about or written about as compared to how big is the participation of women in this sport. And so that's a bit of our baseline. It's a very imprecise uh, kind of baseline. But we can say that, you know, for example, netball, interestingly enough, um, is the most popular sport for women um, in Australia. That's a version of basketball. It's the most um, popular sport for women. Very, very high participation rate is never written about. Um, so we find gender gaps in the likelihood that women are talked about versus men. We also find gender gaps in the kinds of sports that people talk about. So interestingly enough, uh, there's a bit of a movement for women to play rugby now in Australia. Rugby, of course, is a very male sport. Um, but that um, gap is smaller than the gap for female or feminine gendered sports. And so women who play rugby are actually written about a bit more than women who play netball. And thirdly, one other interesting uh, thing that we found, which gives me some hope, um, uh, again, it's all pretty tenuous yet, although we have you know, big numbers of data, is we find the biggest gaps uh, for national and international reporting, and small gender gaps for local sports reporting. And there's definitely some theories suggesting that when I talk about people in my environment, they become people. And then I can go beyond the stereotypes. Then I see, you know, the mother of my colleague's child kind of playing tennis, for example, and I might be talking about her as, you know, a great tennis player, and here's what great tennis players do. So we find small gaps in local reporting, and the biggest gaps are kind of the most social distance. Um, I don't have an intervention to tell you, you know, kind of how to fix this. What we're trying to do, a number of things, this is not research, but we're trying a number of things to kind of address this, and it's part, most part of my reason of being in Australia, so there's a new prize now for gender balance reporting, so make a big deal out of this, with the Prime Minister, etc. and say, we really care about gender balance reporting on sports, we know role models matter, um, et cetera, et cetera, for lots of things. We also give um, checklists now to journalists on what does gender balance reporting look like, uh, what, what do you think about. So we're trying a number of things. This is not going to be evaluated, but just give you kind of a warm-up for the kind of issue that we have, um, and then the kind of things that we might want to think about as we're addressing And by the way, I welcome your thoughts, questions, comments as I go through this. So please feel free to raise your hand if ever you'd like to say anything. Um, and I know some of you are, um, of course, in this uh, wonderful class that um, Hannah and Sarah are teaching. So feel free to jump in. Yes, please. Did you also disaggregate the race? So uh, we did, we did, we tried, um, but was much harder in Australia because um, pretty homogenous <coughs> overall. Still, their Asians is kind of the second biggest group. Aborigines <coughs> are very, very small, very, very small group. Um, but that is a particular focus for them as well. So I can't really speak to this on this later. Okay. So um, this is somebody that uh, most of you know, those of you, half of you who have read the book and kind of know well. Uh, her name is Heidi Rosen. She um, is a venture capitalist. She's kind of my 
you know, opening story in one of my chapters on unconscious bias, and I'm just quickly repeating it so that everyone is on the same page. Because it is kind of a nice way to help us understand how prevalent unconscious bias is. Uh, the story that I tell is that we now have a case study uh, that colleagues of ours at the business school wrote about Heidi Royson. And many schools now, including HPS, use this case study not just with the protagonist being called Heidi, but also with the protagonist being called Howard. And at HPS, some of you might, be, uh, might have experienced this, um, half of the students get the case with the protagonist being called Heidi, the other half of the students with the protagonist being called Howard. And then they prepare for class, as they usually do, um, but also fill out a questionnaire beforehand about how they think about Heidi and Howard. And specific questions include, would you want to work with Heidi or Howard? Would you hire Heidi or Howard? Did they do a great job in this case? And do you like them? And sadly, um, what people find time and again is that people agree that Heidi and Howard did a great job, but we're just a bit less likely to like Heidi. And that's you know, well-known, much studied, uh, well-documented phenomenon kind of this like, competence-likeability dilemma that in particular we're in face. Um, it is helpful, um, I think, for students to experience this and in a matter of seconds, really, um, how prevalent these biases can be and that they affect all of us. And I think that is a first important message. This is not about pointing fingers at anyone, but this is just about us acknowledging and how our minds work. Um, and then the second thing, and then I'll go back to kind of newer stuff that I also do in the book, but I thought I'm going to repeat here because some of you might not have seen this before, is a way for people to kind of, in a non-threatening way, see how prevalent these stereotypes, or you might want to say categorical thinking, can be. So the typical question that I ask when I give a talk um, uh, uh, to the business community or to, to a public sector community is to ask um, people to compare scores A and B. And I'm kind of asking the same question, and I presume that most of you see square B as being lighter than square A. And then I typically cover the surroundings, and you will see that about now, um, they kind of look the same. In fact, they are the same. Um, and of course, this is an illusion. Um, but I use this to motivate um, the argument that this categorical thinking is not just something that happens when we look at uh, a checkerboard, where we make sense of the pattern that we see and we know there's a logic, light square next to dark square, etc. But it also happens when we evaluate or see people. In that Heidi is evaluated more harshly than Howard because she doesn't fit the category. She doesn't fit our stereotypes of what a typical venture capitalist looks like or, for that matter, what a good woman does. So um, what I'm doing now is quite literally I'm liberating your minds to do justice to be. Um, and I'm suggesting that that's a bit of a metaphor um, really for the rest of my talk. That very often we actually need to cover the surroundings, in quotation marks, or make it easier for all of us to get things right by changing the environment, environment in which we live. And in many ways, that is the one sentence summary um, of um, uh, my work, of uh, much um, of the work that people have done at WAP, in that is about debiasing the context, debiasing systems, practices, procedures. It's not about debiasing or fixing people. Okay, um, so this is, uh, you know, 
kind of an, an interesting example. You know that uh, some organizations, including our symphony orchestra here in Boston, have in fact introduced this, have introduced blind evaluation procedures, have um, uh, started in the 70s to have uh, musicians audition behind a curtain, blinding themselves with people's demographic characteristics, again, to liberate themselves from those biases. And there are, and this is not in any way a conclusive list, but an increasing number of organizations which now take off the names from people's resumes um, to try to understand whether that affects their hiring. The biggest employer so far is the UK government. Um, I have it up here, yeah, civil service. So the UK government was one of the first um, big you know, employers and countries. Um, the biggest employer, of course, in the, UA, uh, in the UK is now doing blind um, evaluations completely for all 500,000 employees. So resumes are blind now. Uh, to uh, uh, demographic characteristics. So that's one example of being resigned, but I don't want us to be hung up on, you know, this is just about blinding ourselves to demographic characteristics. That's one way um, to think about this, but there's of course others. In fact, I just want to take a moment um, and show you this um, to suggest to you that, of course, behavioral design is just one tool in our collective toolbox. There's many other tools. So. What you have here are fractions of women in parliament and corporate boards in a number of countries. This is a very recent stat that, that we took from the FT. It's about two or three weeks old. And, um, and these countries have chosen different types of interventions. That's all I have, that's why I have here. But this is not a randomized controlled trial, so I didn't evaluate this. I'm just giving you some, some ideas of what you know, could be done. So in France, for example, they introduced quotas. So quotas is not necessarily a behavioral instrument. That is a hammer. That's more than a notch. That's a hammer. And it works. It works. And it increases the fraction of women very, very quickly. Um, so that's one instrument. Australia, um, on the other hand, has in fact um, caught up very quickly in the last two years. So that's actually quite interesting. They've increased the um, fraction of women on the corporate boards by 10 percentage points in just two years because of investor pressure. So all of a sudden, the shareholders and investors started to vote down companies' boards, which did not have um, at least 25% uh, women on the corporate boards. So you know, sh shareholder pressure, investor pressure, that's a newer thing, super interesting, happening, kind of really happening in the last five years, starting to use sustainability, not actually focusing on diversity and inclusion, now moving to diversity <coughs> and inclusion. So incentives, right? So that's many of you um, are in our public policy program, will be quite familiar with incentives or, or study economics. So yes, I'm an economist, I believe incentives can work as well. Um, the UK is a bit different in that um, they set themselves a goal of increasing gender diversity corporate boards and focusing on boards now, um, uh, which wasn't a neither a quota, nor was it enforceable in any way. And they used in fact lots of behavioral insights to get to that 25%. And I might have time to talk a bit more about that, but if that interests you, uh, I rewrote a case study on how the UK did this, using behavioral design uh, to increase gender diversity on their corporate boards. Um, so that's yet, you know, so that's the behavioral design box, that's kind of the traditional econ box, think incentives, and that's maybe, the first one is the regulatory box, right? You can introduce a law, you can create incentives, or you can use behavioral design. Um, it's unclear what we're doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so let me just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, and then we talk about these two interesting cases. And in Japan, it's kind of interesting because part of economics 
is and was womenologist. And so, the, you know, Prime Minister Abe made it very clear and understood and he, that he believed the IMF calculations mm -hmm. that Japan is really, really hurt most um, compared to every other country in the world if they do not increase women's workforce participation. And so they got the economics and nothing much has happened really. Um, I know this is just a moment in time, but we have, we, if you look at this over time, nothing much has happened. And India is kind of an interesting tool because um, at the local level, India has introduced quotas um, in 1993 to increase the fraction of women leaders um, um, of local um, jurisdictions, um, the pragans, those of you from India know this, kind of mayors. And that has been evaluated quite a bit by our very own Rohini uh, Pandey here, but other people as well. Uh, but it hasn't translated to the federal level. So nothing has been introduced here. Um, so this is just to motivate your thinking and just to make clear, I'm not saying here design is the answer to everything. There's different tools in our toolbox that we <coughs> use, and different countries have made different choices. But I am suggesting that uh, behavioral design might be one of those tools that we haven't quite used enough, that might be a middle ground between just moral appeals um, that we might want to say you know, is happening in the US, um, kind of saying this is the right thing to do, and we should really have more diversity. Um, so between that and a quota, there's actually some room in between that I think we, that space that we need to fill that space. Okay. So now um, I want to so before I give you another example, I wanted to show you this. So change is happening in the U.S. as well in an interesting way. Um, in that this is um, so I'm not by the way I'm not calling out this particular law firm. They actually, funny enough. They have the reputation of being one of the most diverse firms, <laughs> caring most. But this made the front page of the New York Times about three weeks ago. And that's why I have it here. So now this is national news. And it is, you know, so the front page, I think this is a big article on how is this possible? How, you know, what your partners? This is a new, so this is the newly, I guess, sorry, yeah. This is the newly elected partners. Um, it's a big problem for this firm now and being talked about and the law in, the, you know, in, in those circles. So the social pressure, I think, is starting to increase. Um, and that you know, can be quite hopeful. OK, so now I go back, um, I'm actually going to skip this, and go back to um, behavioral design and give you a concrete example. And then I want to spend the rest uh, of my talk talking about some kind of specific studies that are kind of ongoing and walk you a bit through maybe the talent management process. So this is, again, not yet research, um, but I hope a good story. Um, so a year ago, I was in Stockholm, and I was invited by the Nobel Prize Foundation. And they invited me because they uh, woke up to the realization that 97% of all Nobel Prizes in the sciences have gone to men. Um, and so they were interested in maybe something was wrong, you know, the, at least the question, asking the question, is something wrong with how we do this? Now, I have to tell you, this was a very interesting day that I spent there because, first of all, this is all super secretive. So I was like, well, I can't tell you what you're doing. I think, well, if you don't tell me what, tell me what you're doing. Um, so it was an interesting day. And there's some things I learned that I can't talk about. There's some things I learned I cannot talk about. And there's lots of things I've never learned. So that's a short summary, but this is one thing that I can't talk about, and, uh, but it's also public that has been written about already. Um, so I actually started out with this as an observation because um, I knew this, 
because every year I get um, a letter from the Nobel Foundation asking me to nominate people for the Nobel Prize in economics. So I knew what the form looks like, the nomination form. Um, and so I, uh, I, I actually built on that and suggested this. But I'll give you a bit of background why I suggested this. Um, there's some old, uh, old research, I can't say it's old, but it's like 30, 40 years old. It started out in psychology, um, kind of under the rubric of variety seeking. And basically what they were interested in, are there conditions, environments where people choose more of the same? Or other environments and conditions where people kind of start to go for variety? And it came actually out of marketing. As in, if I wanted to buy, you know, if I had different jams, how do I have to organize my jams? If I want to buy the same, you know, orange marmalade all the time, how do I have to do that? So one of the experiments, they looked something like this. Um, they asked half um, of students in high school to choose a snack for the next 30 days of the month. So you choose a snack today, um, and uh, sorry, you choose 30 snacks now, for the next 30 days. And you have lots of snacks available, so no constraints. And then the other half was asked to choose a snack every day of the month. So every morning you choose a snack for today. Um, and what they found was that this group here was much more likely to go for variety. Because you just can't imagine that you would want to have the same chocolate bar or cereal or apple you know, 30 times in a row. But these people here were much more likely to go for their favorite snack. Because every morning, morning they were like, apple, chocolate bar, chocolate bar. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Swiss. <laughs> so, um, so that led to kind of you know, a lot of research um, and kind of influenced some of my thinking um, that these bundled choices, where I make more than one choice at a time, um, will lead to more diversity because we'll, we start to think about our choices more as in terms of a portfolio approach. Um, and we now actually have evidence, and that in fact is true, um, also for gender diversity. <coughs> but last year, so that's, that was my simple suggestion to them, and I said, why don't you ask nominators like myself to nominate three people and not just one? Because if I just nominate one, I'm much more likely to go back to my favorite snack, or the kinds of people have always been nominated, what's been in the pool. And this, again, my research, I have no way of knowing. They have introduced it. So this is the new form, it's a copy of my form, actually. This is a new form. They have introduced it last year. Last year was a great year for women. Um, the first time that two women um, simultaneously won the prize in chemistry and physics. Um, so, so in any case, but that's, um, I wanted to give this to you to suggest that it can be as simple as redesigning a form, right? So it, it of course, can be much more complex, but it can be as simple as redesigning a form. Okay. Any questions before I now go a bit more into kind of the, the organization and talent management? Yes, please. Ask you a quick question. Yes. So you may or may not be able to disclose this, but from a grant maker's perspective, that idea of bundle choice when you're deciding on final grantees, if you're nominating three people, but you see the full the full spectrum of who's being nominated, changes and shifts how you want to uh, pick the final prize winners, for example, or grantees. Did you go into that from their perspective of how they chose? I have no information. Yes. No, 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 yeah. no, no, I'm not even saying, I, it's not that I can't disclose. Uh -huh. I have no information. Oh, interesting. I have no idea. Yeah. I literally spent the day with them, told them everything I could, um, extracting as much information as I could on what are they actually doing. Yeah. But I have no information. Um, I don't know how they, you know, something happens. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay, 
Um, so then let me get into kind of some more nitty-gritty things and things where I have the answer, <laughs> hopefully. Um, so this is actually um, not advertising in Coca-Cola. <laughs> but I am actually talking about uh, our marketing departments. In that Coca-Cola, um, as many other soft drink companies, have learned a few years ago, in vigorous research, in fact, experimental research, that men were not buying Diet Coke. And so they introduced this. And we have, uh, you know, Pepsi, of course, which has Pepsi Max, and we have lots of, you know, other soft drink companies, uh, which have gen use gender words. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but in fact, what I am saying is that we should use the same kind of rigor and scrutiny in our HR department and become smarter about the work, for example, in our job advertising. And that's work, uh, I don't know if Heidi's here, Heidi's seen her, oh, Heidi's right here. Heidi's work that Heidi Liu, who is a doctoral student here, um, is pursuing right now. Really trying to understand um, kind, of, kind of what's happening in this space. Because it is actually a really interesting space in that uh, we now have technology, we have algorithms um, that help you de-bias the language that you use in your job advertisements. But you know, more profoundly, this whole question of language, of course, is not just constrained to job advertisements, but also to how we present ourselves, for example, as we uh, apply to jobs. And so what Heidi is, in fact, looking at is more at the self-representation um, in an environment that is your orchestra environment. So remember the orchestras, they have these blind evaluation procedures, they have the curtain. Um, she's now working with a tech company which provides the software to organizations to blind themselves to demographic characteristics. And then the question that this, uh, this company has, which is very research oriented, um, is this in fact going to do a good job blinding the employer or the evaluator, or am I self-revealing my gender or other characteristics about myself um, kind of as, a, as I respond to questions that they ask? Um, and this is all done um, electronically, so that's why we have in, in writing. So that's why Heidi can, in fact, analyze the language that is used. And I'm not going to take your thunder away. <laughs> but the one thing I think I can say is, and she's still in the midst of analyzing this, it turns out that it's not just your own gender that we have to worry about. Mm -hmm. It's also the gendered nature of the job. So people seem to <laughs> use language that is different when they apply for a nursing job than when they apply for an engineering job. And so this interaction between you know, your own gender, and I know, by the way, I'm binary here. So that's sadly where most of the data is still today. Um, but I have to be binary for the moment. Um, in that there's this interaction between your own gender and the gender nature of the job that is probably something that we really have to pay attention to. Okay. Um, then uh, you know, again, going through the career pipeline now, um, it gets even uh, maybe harder when you think about what happens as you are uh, kind of entering the door and you get a job interview. And you know, and there's lots of research um, that I'm not going to spend a ton of time on right now on kind of bias in our evaluation. So we know this is bias as well in the life, racial bias, gender bias, just based on your looks, there's beauty premium, there's lots of things going on kind of that is really, really bad. So um, in research with Huntington Ekenter, who is sitting right there on the floor, is <laughs> <laughs> um, a postdoc um, here at the Women Public Policy Program, and Ash Craig, who is um, a doctoral student in the econ department. 
um, we were actually kind of trying to unpack this a little bit. And um, <coughs> so I'll tell you about the study, and then I'm already giving you a bit of spoiler alert that what we're, what we're hoping would work didn't quite work. Um, so, um, but anyway, so let me tell you uh, where we're at. Uh, so first of all, I should also be very clear, we're still in a, a bit in the midst of this. So hopefully, maybe we'll find something better than that that I'm going to tell you right now. But anyway, so here's what we're doing. So this is actually a very interesting place. We're working with a um, practice uh, platform. So this is, um, you apply for a job at Google. They tell you, go and practice with this tech startup. They mimic what we do in our interviews. We actually want you to be better. We want you to know how this works. So if you apply for a job as a coder, then you go to this platform here, and they say, okay, give us some information of kind of the languages you speak, like Java, others, how much experience you have, what kind of job do you apply. We'll pair you with somebody who is kind of similarly situated as you are, not in terms of demographic characteristics, but who has kind of similar experience and applying for similar jobs, and that's going to be your practice interview partner. And so then they do this practice thing, and then they get some feedback. And now I have to tell you a little bit about what that, about what that looks like. So initially, when um, we uh, had access to their data, the initial setup was, you log on, I meet somebody like Hannah, like me, Hannah might be in Russia, and Hannah and I first had an interview. So we first kind of talk about, and we try to value each other a bit about you know, how much math do you know, and do you really know or you want to be a coder, etc. It's the first stage. And then the second stage is we actually write some code. And then Hannah evaluates my code, I evaluate her code. And what we found um, uh, are gender gaps in our, uh, in our evaluations. So primarily in terms of our performance. And then we went to an experiment. And the experiment seemed like super simple. And honestly, I thought, this is not going to land us like an A publication because it's so trivial, but it must work. Namely, we told the company, why don't you do the interview first? Why don't you do the more objective part first? Why don't you code first? And then you don't have Hannah evaluate my code and me evaluate Hannah's code. A machine can do that. Do something a bit more objective, where we both get information on kind of objectively how well we code. And then we interview each other. So we thought, that by giving this more objective performance information, we could make the gap go away. And it doesn't look very promising like that. Um, now again, uh, we're not done yet, so we're still kind of hopeful fine-tuning stuff, but it certainly doesn't look like this is gonna solve kind of uh, the whole problem. Which of course suggests, um, in fact, what, the, what the, this platform also told us, is like, are you kind of saying we just should do away with the interview and the whole thing completely? Right? They should just code, and that should be the final score, um, where we don't find gender gaps in, in performance. And that's you know, kind of one, one conclusion here, that kind of take people out of the equation. They just mess up stuff. Now, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you can quote me on that. <laughs> I know I'm recording, so the world knows about this. No, no, but um, I mean, that is one conclusion. But you know, another one, of course, is to say, Coding quality is not, is not the only factor that I care about, and that's probably right. We probably care about other things as well um, in a coder, and so, so that begs the question of what kind of assessment tool could we come up with that would do a better job evaluating these other aspects you know, of, of a person. <coughs> and I don't think we quite have that down. So 
we do know that these, what I'm going to call work sample tests, that is that your coding example, is the best predictor of future performance. So that evidence is actually very strong. Um, but there's other, again, there's these other things. We also know that structured interviews where you ask, you think about questions beforehand, you ask every candidate the same set of questions, and you use some, you know, some somewhat more advanced kind of calibration technology, does much better than kind of the informal interview, where we just kind of have a nice chat and talk about stuff. And you might share your hobby with me, and I might like you because you also like synchronized swimming, you used to be a synchronized swimmer. <laughs> and then, uh, therefore, I think you're a great professor at Harvard. Um, but that's, you know, so that's, um, so we, we do know a bit, but we still don't quite know how to do this perfectly. Yes, please. Do you have the data on interviewer and interviewing gender? Yes. And, and uh, interestingly enough, <coughs> we don't find a lot of action there. So, but your question is more, we don't find in-group bias, we don't, we don't find that women are harsher than women, we don't find that women are nicer with women. So we find that the driving force is the gender of the evaluated, of the interviewee, of the evaluated. Um, and that's, by the way, just to make a bit of a, I'm going to generalize a little bit, but um, look at Hannah, it's probably true to say, we tend to overestimate how important our own, our own demographic characteristics are. Most of these stereotypes are shared. Uh, so this is not to say that there's not, you know, there's sometimes we find interactions and we sometimes find in-group preferences. And so I'm not saying there's nothing there. But if you ask me what is the big action, it really is uh, whether Heidi fits our stereotypes of what a typical venture capitalist looks like. More so than my own demographic characteristics. So it wasn't the case that when both were males and both females. There was any repeat the question? No differences. Yeah. Oh, yeah, repeat no, the significant difference. Let me just ask repeat you to repeat the question. Oh, the question was, uh, the, you know, does uh, evaluated gender matter? So do I find differences between male-male pairs, female-female pairs, male-male-female? Mm -hmm. And that's, I'm looking at um, Clementine. That's not, we didn't, find, we didn't find anything there. We didn't find any interactions effect. We find this main effect that the gender of the interviewee the evaluated <coughs> Um, is really is important and leads to this gender gap in evaluations, both by male and female evaluator, of course. Yes? So are you looking at the communication of the interviewees to see if there's just internal bias in the way women are communicating during the interview process? <laughs> this happens a lot in PC and presentations like that where women are, um, when they talk about the business, it's how can you minimize our losses and where it's for men, is how can the men respond with that? Yes. Make, and so is there something there that might be different that can be measurable? It's very interesting. We haven't done that um, yet. Uh, we might, but we haven't done that yet. We haven't looked at what they're actually talking about. Although I don't even know we have that data. No, we don't we have it. They talk. I don't know they have recorded it. I don't even know we have. We haven't asked what we should. <laughs> but. I don't know they record the interview. So this is not in writing. Um, but generally, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I'll give you um, another study. Um, and I'm blanking on his name right now, but um, it comes out of Stanford. Um, and he found in his dissertation that women incorporate less into their CVs. So I'll give you an extreme, and uh, make this more extreme. But he has this very nice, uh, nice statistical analysis. Make it more extreme, but basically what he finds is that you know, you've had one year French, 
Uh, women don't include that because that feels like I'm not a beginner, I'm certainly not proficient. You know, men who had one year of French are proficient in French. But that's literally what we found. So, and not disagreeing with you that self-representation is important and there's very serious research kind of suggesting that there are gender differences in self-representation. Um, and then, of course, Hannah's research kind of then speaks to the question, you know, is this just because women are too shy or, you know, less self-confidence? No, no. Her research then tells us this is because we are concerned about social backlash and kind of, uh, kind of apply these higher standards. Dana, Dana Kams and Adam Fintanek-Cohier are also working on this kind of communication dissection. Yes, yes. Please. I, I was wondering if you looked at particular occupations or industries, and if so, did you focus purely on uh, white-collar professional positions? Or did you also look at uh, male-dominated industries, which tend to be more blue-collar positions? So uh, most all, if not all, of the work that I'm presenting today is, I think probably all, is part of um, a big research project that we're currently running at WAP and um, that is focused on gender technology. So in that sense, mostly tech sector um, today which doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at others, um, but this is part of um, a project that Melinda Gates is funding, particularly focused on the use of technology and can it help overcome gender bias and, uh, and the tech sector per se. Um, so, you know, coding is a white collar job um, at different levels, but we, I have not looked at them, the blue collar jobs that you have in mind. Uh, we have a question all the way in the back, so you have to probably speak very loudly. Okay. I think I have to wait until the mic is where you are because I don't think we can hear it up here. Okay. In the past, uh, long time ago, a little bit, sport is just one hour a week or so. Now sport becomes so vast and it's become violence behavior in the school and everywhere. And do we women have to learn this violent behavior? And what is, it's not even a profession in my understanding. Oh, so I don't know I have a great answer right now, but I'm happy, maybe, maybe afterwards, I'm happy to talk a bit more. Yeah, it's not the brain, it's not the brain uh, work, it's a physical work, and it is, it's a violent behavior. So the more they, they have the strength physically, the more they have uh, very aggressive. Yes. Then that is a profession, and that's a form. I don't know why. Why this, the the university or high school they don't restrain them because it's a violent behavior. Yes. Yes. No. Thank you for your comment. Mm -hmm. uh, Hannah, J just building on that, I do, there's kind of an interesting thing of um, do we have to question whether we're always comparing ourselves to the male standard? So if women aren't doing stuff enough, so so another example is competition, right? So, so there, we keep emphasizing women don't. I, I just another way of interpreting that is thinking about why are we holding women to the male standard, and then when women are short of the male standard, that we assume that that's they're suboptimal. Yeah. And um, if you look, for instance, at some of the research on competition, um, you know, you actually see that part of the gender gap in competition has to do with overconfident men entering enter, entering tournaments in which they really have no realistic probability of winning. So it's not just about women being, you know, disinclined to compete, but also sometimes 
with um, men overestimating their capacity to do that. So it is kind of an interesting question about and that we make sure that we don't, from just from a critical perspective, we make sure that we don't always just assume if the women are off the male target that, that, that that's problematic. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I can actually, um, I think I can give an example here from the Kennedy School that actually builds directly on that because Hannah and I were complicit in making this happen. So when I came here as a junior faculty member 20 years ago, you had to ask for parental leave. And of course, you know, then one way to fix this problem is to say, let's teach ears to ask. You know, uh, so you can become a more aggressive negotiator and whatever, other things. And by the way, I'm not saying we don't also have to do that. So I just want to make very clear, we can't wait until, you know, Hannah and, and Michaela and, and, and I and many others in this room have fixed the system. So we do have to navigate the system at the same time. Right? So we will be totally aware of that. But at the same time, so that was a problem. And so then we just changed the rules. Then we said, why is that even a negotiation? Right? Why don't we make the default assumption that A, everyone gets parental leave, and the default assumption is you have to negotiate your way out mm -hmm. of parental leave. Mm -hmm. I'll give you another great example of flexibility. Um, uh, Telstra is the biggest telecommunications um, company. Um, I imagine you're from Australia? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so Telstra is the biggest communications company, uh, telecommunications in, in, in Australia, and they make flexibility the default. And it's super interesting. Um, I've actually been following this now for about eight years. They were also early movers in this space. Um, and literally, as in now you're asked, why are you in the office today? Can't you work from home? Hmm. And you can already see how that completely changes the norms and the dynamics. And so I, I couldn't agree more with you that these defaults, these default comparisons are hugely relevant. Now, if you go back, I just want to go back one, one moment to this um, CV problem in that that's a hard one right now to say okay it's not great that men say on average I mean exaggerating here an example for the sake of the argument one year French is proficiency that is not the world we want to live in that's not great that can't be our goal at the same time this the same research um, showed that employers don't discount this right employers are not taking this into consideration so he could actually show that employers don't say oh but that's Really, really exaggerate that we can't take this seriously. So now the right, that but you have the data, so you can ask the question. Is the point, right? Yes, you yes. have the data, so you can explore. Absent the data, you can't ask the question. I mean, I think it's yes. very profound. It's a yeah. yes, 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 yes. No, no. I think we're kind of in wild agreement. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, no. I totally. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's very. I think it's a real learning opportunity in what you're doing beyond just. It's very profound. It's a very gender stereotypical thing that we're in wild agreement. Yeah, we actually are in wild agreement. <laughs> <laughs> we're also very different. <laughs> 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 yes, please. Oh, I, I have a question. Yeah. Um, there Why don't we pass? Could we pass the mic? Could, could people help pass the mic? So. Nobody has to, thank you very much um, for your help. Nobody has to run around here. Uh, with the recent studies um, for corporations on, on boards where, where there's more women on the boards, where there are more women in senior management, the companies are actually more financially successful. How much is, are we maybe discount, not, not promoting that message enough? So you're looking at, you're going to be financially more successful. So then you don't necessarily have to have blind evaluation because it's like, we need yeah. more women, we mm -hmm. need more diversity. I mean, it's, it goes with diversity also. Yeah. So that that, and then once you get the women in there, or more diverse yeah. board, more diverse senior management, they're more likely to bring that in and highlight it, and everybody wins. Yeah. 
So I have um, two answers. Um, and, and so I'm going to start with the second one. In fact, the second one is just going to say um, the business case is really interesting for us to talk about, and that's not going to be my main answer. But honestly, even if we could prove the business case, I do not think it's going to be enough. Um, because, and that's the behavioral scientist in me, there's still this gap between intention and action. That, you know, we're all kind of intending to eat healthily and exercise every morning and go to bed by 10, sleep eight hours, and other things, and then we don't get around to doing it. And so that intention, act, I, I sometimes t use this very analogy to talk about gender diversity, that even well-intentioned people, like all of us, they can't get around to getting this right because the stereotypes are everywhere. So. I'm not disagreeing with you that the business case is helpful, but I'm still saying we do need this toolbox in addition to what to do now. But now let me go back to the business case, and that's actually a bit of a harder problem I have to confess to you, in that I am a bit more skeptical than you are that we're in fact able to prove the business case. And partly it is just the nature of the beast, of the data situation, in that all that we really kind of can do is show correlations. So we can show relationships between the diversity of a board and the company performance. And there are, in fact, that is was a surprise to me when I wrote the book, over 100 studies, so there's even a meta-analysis on this. There's over 100 studies which have done those correlational analyses and kind of showing, you know, just by country, how does it work in Norway, over the world, over the biggest um, 3,000 companies, a lot of different kind of, um, kind of slices of the whole problem. And then the meta-analysis finds that that correlation coefficient is actually tiny. And we're not even talking about causality. But this is tiny correlation coefficient and heavily dependent. And that would, will not surprise you and did not surprise me then when I read it, um, kind of on the broader cultural context. So it seems to work better in um, countries, in cultural contexts, that um, are a bit further advanced in terms of gender equality but less so um, in other contexts. So it's slightly nuanced. Now, um, we can show the business case. I don't think at that macro level we'll ever be able to do a causal um, argument because it just I don't think the data situation and the reality of life will ever allow us to do that. But we can, of course, create teams um, randomly where we um, this decide you know, there's one woman and four men on a team, two women, three men, three women, et cetera. So we can vary that, and I think that's actually a lot of interesting research has happened has happened there. Um, one way to think about this is the way some researchers at Carnegie Mellon and MIT framed it, in, in that they were arguing that they want to measure the collective intelligence of a team, and so it's very similar actually to individual intelligence measures. And so they varied the gender diversity on the team, and they did find that diverse teams outperform homogenous. Um, so, yes, so there are ways to kind of say that that is true. I'm not sure the board, you know, the macro level is, is the way. And the last thing that you see, this is a big question <laughs> that is a big concern of ours, actually. Um, we, we ran a WAP, uh, ran a conference on the business case um, about five years ago, maybe longer, seven years ago, where we brought, you know, development economists and management scholars, and we brought everyone together to really talk about this because it's such a profound question and difficult question. Um, but what we also learned in that context is, and something that I don't think is enough talked about, that's why I don't think just a business case, even if you could prove it, will be enough. Diversity is hard work. 
and that I think is also something we have to take seriously. Mm -hmm. That even if we could prove the business case for, we're going to make this up now for Harvard. You know, the individual manager then has to do the work of diversity and inclusion. And to bring that down to the individual person is actually not so easy. So there's a long answer to a very profound, important question. Um, okay, any more questions? Yes, please. Um, thank you so far. This has been fascinating. Um, you talk about um, bias. I mean, sorry, you talk about algorithms and bias. Yes. But there's some good evidence that those algorithms themselves can be biased. Yes, absolutely. So I just was hoping you could touch on that a little bit. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. uh, sadly enough, um, I mean, many of these algorithms right, are trained on existing data. So for example, if you think of machine learning, um, so in fact, I give you a very concrete example. So I, I'm called into a company, a tech company, big tech company, and they said, thank goodness we got this. We fixed it. Um, we got that we shouldn't do these um, promotion decision, performance appraisals, um, kind, of, kind of individually um, in a in decentralized way, etc. We now have an algorithm. In fact, what we did is we learned uh, from our past of who, what the people look like who have been promoted, <laughs> and, and we're now using that to evaluate these other people. And um, anyway, so I'm like, oh. You know, um, maybe we should look at the data. And they found exactly, and we found what I would have expected we'd find, that that made it worse. That made it worse because also, I mean, those of you who know more about um, um, AI than I do or machine learning will know that in fact the machine learns, as in more so than humans, even if there's only 10% women, the machine is going to try to fix this, as in saying, oh, only 10%, that's clearly a mistake, it's an ab aberration, so let me try to do better and get rid of these 10%. That's literally what, what the machine did. Um, and so I couldn't agree more with you. That, you know, algorithmic auditing is a huge, huge uh, question. And so don't misunderstand me when I'm saying the machine is always better than humans or the human is always better than the machine. What I'm really saying is measure and validate, measure, keep track of your data, you know, experiment, try out new things, don't copy what your competitor does or some other government does or some other department does, try it out, keep track. So that would be the assignment. Okay, um, so lots of action uh, that's Good news. I'm just going to do maybe one more slide, and then I'm going to open the floor again. We don't have, but this is a lot of startups in this space. Super exciting for us. That, in fact, it is happening. Many, you know, some with algorithms, some not with algorithms, some with blind evaluations, some with deviasing texts. So, we are actually quite excited about that. We're not saying anyone then particularly has it completely right. But that's what we need. We need movement in the space, lots of different actors who try out new things, ideally share them and we can learn. So we hosted a conference on gender tech um, half a year ago, where we have many of them here and that kind of tried to encourage that learning. Um, okay, um, I wanted to just tell you uh, maybe one more big theme and then I'm gonna not forget to call on you um, before we, um, <coughs> oh no, better might not. I'll wait, go ahead. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I just have a quite practical question because I think it's very important that we talk about those realities women are still facing, but how do we get more men into this room? Uh, how do we realize gender equality when talking about this topic? Mm. How do we get men um, to do research on gender equality? Ah. 
because I think that's a very important topic. Look, it's a good question. You're for us. Authors. Um, but it's still a good question. I don't want to make fun of your question at all. It's a very, very important question to get men, you know, into this conversation and to make sure gender is not about women, race is not about non-white people. Um, it's still true. So at Harvard, definitely true when I teach a course that has gender in the title, my class is going to be 90-10. If I teach the same course and have kind of gender inclusion in the syllabus but not in the title, it's like 40-60. And I actually, true statement, um, on two versions of the same course that I taught. Um, so it's, it, it, is, it is a problem. Um, and I don't, you know, honestly, I don't have a, a very good answer. I don't think scientifically, in fact, know how to do this. I can only tell you how I, you know, kind of the, the kind of things that I'm trying to do. So one thing, and you will find this very lame, and it is lame. <laughs> um, I gave a talk at Wall Street, and Wall Street then had, um, it was actually 400 people. So it was exactly 100 people, 95 men and five women. And how I broke the ice, and I have no idea what that really was, but here's what I tried. Um, I asked them to raise their hand if they have children, and many hands went up. And then I asked them whether they had daughters, and still many hands went up. And then I said, oh, that's great. So now I know I'm just speaking to the converted here, my allies in the room. I know this, again, it's going to be lame, but there's good research, including by Maya Sen at the Kennedy School, showing that fathers of daughters do care more than fathers of sons. Um, now, it's not a policy, right? <laughs> really a policy um, uh, intervention here that I'm suggesting. And I'm not actually suggesting this, but, I'm, I'm, but I, I'm giving you the example because we do know, of course, in a lot of psychological research, um, A, change is really hard, it's very hard for people to change, to care. But this is not necessarily a cognitive thing, but it has to be an emotional thing as well. So you have to get at something deeper than, you know, there's another re reason I think the business case itself probably not going to be enough. Um, you know, but there are, and again, going back to the, to the UK example that I was involved in increasing gender diversity, there are different motivations. There are those men. So another thing that we realized um, in that whole kind of notch process, we didn't need all the chairmen of the uh, FTSE 100, the 100 biggest companies, to say hooray, hooray. We only needed a couple, a few at the beginning who then helped us kind of be the voice. And one of them was the chairman of a big bank, and in fact, he believed in the business case. He said, I believe because I believe that Lehman sisters would have been different than Lehman brothers. He actually <laughs> And that was his motivation, so it can't happen that way. And then the other one had daughters and said, I see it with my daughters, therefore I care and I become your voice. And they then became actually the voice of the movement that in the end led, led to success. Um, so I don't think there's a one, one strategy, but I'm just widely agreeing again that we do need uh, to have more men um, in, in the conversation. Anna? Yes, please. Sure. Um, so thank you so much for this talk. One thing I'm so curious about is sort of how you can tell, maybe from the get-go, what context behavioral insights will work and others where they'll be less successful. So thinking about you know blind hiring works really well in some cases, and in others you don't see the diversity gains you yeah. want. Um, and I'm curious whether that's because you know there's such a thin line between social norms that people want to comply with and rules that they want to rebel against, mm -hmm. or if there's something else at play there. Yeah. 
It's a very, very good question. Um, and honestly, I, I don't think I have the answer. So I don't know, I know, a priori, what's going to work for your organization. But on the blind evaluation procedure, um, we do not have a meta-analysis, if that interests you, across <coughs> that evaluates kind of all those different studies. And um, we have a bit of a better sense. And um, now let me give you kind of some, some thoughts. Um, uh, so some of the studies uh, did not find that blinding worked because it actually was a methodological mistake. And I'll, I'm going to tell you about that. But it's actually really important. And many of you who are in quant classes will have heard about this before. So the French data did not find that blinding increased diversity. But here's how the French data set came to be. Um, so the French government was interested in experimenting with the blind, blinding um, CVs would help increase diversity. And so they asked companies to volunteer and participate in the blinding experiment. Now, you know, everyone who takes a quant class will say, oh, the selection bias. Right now I have not a random sample of companies volunteering to participate, but it is some subset that I don't know about. Now it turns out, the researchers are clear about that in the paper, but it has been described differently. It turns out the companies which already cared about diversity were the ones who volunteered to say, oh, we are with the government, we care, we want to help advance knowledge, we want to really understand this. They were actually the ones who followed your argument before, saying we value diversity, and now blinding removes that option. Right? So in that sense, strictly speaking as an economist, right, this wasn't a randomized control trial, this wasn't an experiment, it wasn't a randomly assigned control group and treatment group, but selection effect. It's the same thing is true for the Australian government, Australia has done the same thing, but asked um, people to participate in this experiment and evaluate um, these blind versus non-blinded CVs. And again, they find selection effects in people who volunteer to participate. So these are employees, um, civil servants in, in, um, in Canberra. Um, so we know, I know, I know these studies relatively well because I care about this question. So I, just, I do think that's one, one answer. The second answer, um, which I think we, we absolutely also have to give, um, is to say, I mean, if you are an employer who cares about diversity and says, this is part of what I look for. I believe that we now don't need to replicate everyone in this room, but we need someone who's not in this room um, at Harvard or in my team. And they look different too. They might come from a country that is not yet here. And I really care about that country perspective because I know that our students come from that country and therefore we need somebody from that country, right? And I blind behind the Kennedy School to that, then I can't look for that country. So I'm with you that, again, in different, different tools can work in different places. There's also now, this is, um, um, I'm going to be very careful here, because I think you are at the law school too. I think Sarah's at the law school. So I'm very thin ice here, but I'm definitely <laughs> noticing. But you know that there's different legal environments that sometimes you can take, in some, in some countries, you can't take race or gender into considerations, in others you can't. So I'll tell you about France, for example. We're working with a French company, and they can give us their data by gender, but not by race. It's illegal to even measure race. Nobody ever collects racial data. It's illegal to do so. So that's, you know, that, that's what I'm saying. It's, um, it's a very good question. I don't know when I go into an organization, I probably, what I do try to do, um, is a bit of a different answer is, but I, I only work for organizations which give me their data. That is kind of as in a signal, are they in fact serious to their data? Yes. Um, I, this is all very fascinating on the hiring and the, and the evaluations. 
Are there any sort of behavioral research um, on the recruitment process, <coughs> so getting people to actually apply and how to get you know, more parity in that respect? Yeah. So um, I'm very biased towards Australia now because this is recency bias. I've just been there. So I'm, and we did this um, great workshop where we have lots of behavioral scientists talking about the intervention. So I'm going to give you a study that the New South Wales government is doing. Um, where they are in fact nudging people um, kind of to, to apply. And what they found was that, for example, uh, there's no difference in the life that men and women were applied to the government jobs, but women were not finishing the application. So they're now really trying to understand at which point, you know, do women opt out? Is it too complicated, too hard, gender biased? Um, is difference in confidence? I mean, what is it? That, so, so they did you know, careful data analysis, and that's the problem that they're, they identified. They're also the second thing they're doing, uh, which they have been doing but haven't advertised, is to say, and they think that might, might increase chances that underrepresented groups are not just interested in, um, in women, also in Aborigines. Um, so they, said, so they, once you have applied and you know, they look at you and they write back to you and say, you know, thank you for the application, but you know, we, we found somebody else. They actually keep your profile. If it's very good, they keep it in the pool. And so they're now trying to, to do in, in a randomized control trial by advertising, by sharing that information. As in, definitely apply. We want your file. We, this is not the only job. You're applying for this job now, but we have lots of similar jobs. We want you in our pool. And if this doesn't work out, we'll get back to you on other things. So give us that opportunity to look at you. Um, I don't know, they don't have the results yet, but they're doing that. So yes, so that's, I think, yes, another There's also the gender language in the job ads. The gender language in the job ads? I mean, that's, that's very well studied, that, if that interests you, that you can change how you describe the job. Um, yes, Sarah, in that, you know, don't use adjectives that traditionally are associated with women or with men, depending on, you know, the kinds of diversity that we'd like to increase. Okay, I want to show you one more, um, to, uh, three more slides just very quickly because I do think many of you are probably going to care about this. Um, this is now, because we talked a ton about hiring, but mo most of the action today is actually in promotions. So that's why I want to get there. Right? We're doing much better at the entry level, gender diversity at the entry level, generally diversity at the entry level, but we still have this pyramid with fewer women at the top, fewer people um, of underrepresented groups at the top. And I just wanted to quickly show you this, um, which, we're which we're kind of um, analyzing. But so the UK, um, uh, as probably some of you know, has introduced this new law last year, asking companies to report their gender pay gaps. And I'm an advisor to the uh, Equalities Office, so lots of thinking about how should we measure this. In the end, they didn't use the economist's approach at all. They just said, okay, company X, or not even company, also governments, NGOs, so not just companies. Organization X, tell us how much your men on average make compared to how much your women make on average. Right? It's a gross measure of um, the gender pay gap. And then two interesting things happened. So the, the companies reported, um, but they also felt compelled to decompose um, that gender pay gap. They felt compelled to explain mm -hmm. where does it come from. And where it comes from, I mean, you know, many economists have analyzed it before, it's not a big surprise, but it's basically job uh, occupation. It is, are you an engineer or are you a nurse? And I'm not suggesting this is just choice, this is constrained choice, but it is occupation. And the second one is seniority. 
And then a third one, which economists kind of beautifully call the residual, meaning you don't know what's happening the here, we can't explain it, is kind of you know, unconscious bias other things. But it's actually small. It's on average now lower in, in Western countries. It's now below 10%, which is still high, but you know, better than it was. Much better than it was um, 20 years ago. Um, but seniority is a big deal. So we have, right. So that's why um, many people now focus on this question of career advancement and promotion. So I wanted to tell you um, in my last five minutes, maybe quickly about kind of, um, maybe just particularly two studies. I'm going to skip the first one. Because Ariella, I think, is also here in the room. Um, so we're, um, we're doing something that I'm very passionate about. So in the book already I wrote that I was concerned about practices very common in many, many organizations in that organizations ask their employees to self-evaluate themselves and then share those self-evaluations with their managers before managers make their minds up. Right, and that is not rocket science to imagine that when I give myself a four, that might influence your judgment of me. Um, so we now um, found a company that had, um, in the financial services that has this practice, but then told us, we're working with them on other things, but all of a sudden they told us that they had a glitch one year, where they couldn't share self-evaluation. And of course, um, Ariella Oliver and I were like, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> that is close to an experiment. Um, so let us look at the data. And that's very much what Ariella is spending her days and nights on doing right now. Um, but it does look like, um, in fact, it is working the way we would have predicted it works, in that when there's a gender gap in evaluations, um, in the years where self-evaluations are shared, and that gap decreases in the year where self-evaluations are not shared. And the argument is that if there are gender differences in self-promotion, but again, not saying women can um, do this, but in our kind of society, the societal acceptance of self-promotion, then we are not surprised to see that women give themselves lower scores or harsher themselves than their counterparts. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And then in, in the glitch here, it kind of decreases. So I do think that's a practice that um, we should really rethink. And then I wanted to show you this um, last study that I'll talk about. It's work with Oliver House with a different company where we look at something that we call performance re um, reward bias. So we're not the first ones to find this. Other people have talked about this before, but I want to show you what this means. So first of all, this is an organization, thankfully, which gave us all their data. These are their seniority levels. And so we, the first thing we did is we just looked at why are women missing? Are we not hiring them? Are we not promoting them? Do they leave either voluntarily or involuntarily? And we find what most people do find when they look at this, that most of the action is in gender gap in promotions. And then we looked a bit more carefully, and we wanted to show you something that is going to look pretty extreme, in that on my x-axis here, you have promotion ratings. So if you don't see the x-axis, it's just one to five. So if you get a one, you know, you probably should leave the company. If you get a five, you're like superstar. This is your performance score. And then on my y-axis, I'm going to show you the likelihood of promotion based on your performance score. And so if you get a one or two, um, so that's on your left. Again, if you don't see the axis, don't worry. Um, the likelihood of promotion is very small. In red, you have women. In blue, you have men. Not a big surprise. If you get a three, you know, it's a bit better, but not, not much action there. And so the big question is now, of course, if you're a superstar, what happens? And, uh, and here's what we found. Um, this is the blue bar for men. This is not a mistake. 
<laughs> yes, this is unfortunately not a mistake. So it did not correlate with the likelihood that women were promoted. Um, and so here's what we're doing with this company. Um, we're trying an intervention where we give managers their promotion ratings. Uh, excuse me, the, the, yes, we give managers um, information on who they have promoted in the past five years. We call this the gender promotion ratio. So basically how it works is we um, look at the available pool of people who you could have promoted, and then we look at how many men compared to the available pool have you promoted, and how many women compared to the available pool. And then we do, for those of you who have done behavioral science, this will remind you of all power interventions in the energy space, and we do some you know, smiley faces, kind of other stuff. Um, and um, we've only run a pilot so far, and it, but it seems like that this itself is working. That this itself, just knowing what you have done in the past, um, is working. Of course, going suggesting that much of this is in fact unconscious, implicit, and unintentional. Okay, and with that, um, I have to take a few more questions, but I also wish all of us, and in particular all of you, a good luck design change. <laughs> Right? No, no, I think you can. I think you can. I think you've got a couple minutes. I just wanted to insert, I, before um, this seminar, a number of students asked the question about how do you think about small businesses, small mm -hmm. organizations that, one, may not have um, good capacity for uh, data collection or analysis, um, and then secondly, may also have, you know, they don't have big enough numbers to make good comparisons, and how, 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 how might they apply behavioral insights to their processes? Um, should honestly, it's going to be a bit of a lame answer, but I think um, that is actually one of the advantages of technology that we now have these many startups, which one, you know, one of them is called Textio. I'm not advertising, I'm just saying, and they devise your job advertisements you know, at relatively low cost. Um, another one is called Applied, they give you the software to bind yourself to graphic characteristics to evaluate people comparatively. So, I do think um, that that's what they should be doing. They should. Because the biggest challenge of these small companies, and um, uh, uh, where's Syria and Anisha? Yeah, Syria, uh, right there. We're, we're also doing some research right now um, in kind of venture capital and with entrepreneurs and startups and you know, the home of gender bias, so big deal. Um, but we're finding that HR is not taken seriously. Yeah. Right? They, they, have not, they have not the expertise, not the capacity, the, the bandwidth, but I also think that people is like you know, an add-on. So to them in particular, we would say, use some of this informed HR technology, and that can actually help you really benefit from one of these in the town pool. So that would be, would be my answer. That's terrific. You know what I realized is that we finally put a clock in here, and it's wrong. <laughs> um, okay. So we're right at our hour. Please join me in thanking.